Great, thank you, Nicola. And um, thank you to the readers as well. I'm trying not to gonna bump into any microphones or anything like this at the front here. But uh, it is always a great delight to be with you at Christchurch. And um, uh, I'm coming again. I like it so much. I'm coming again very soon, as Nicola was saying. I think on Easter Sunday, I think I'm coming for uh, confirmations. And uh, some of you may be being confirmed then. And I look forward to meeting you properly. But um, uh, it's really good to be here tonight. And uh, as Nicola was saying, I'm uh, speaking on the, the theme of um, this little book, which I brought out uh, a year or two back, called um, uh, Why Being Yourself is a Bad Idea. And that might seem a little controversial title, but I want to try and explain uh, what it means. That's the theme uh, of uh, today. And we actually have got some copies of the book at the back. If you want to uh, buy one later on, that's um, uh, entirely up to you. But anyway, here is the sermon. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of um, maybe going to a, a job interview. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you're going to, you, re you really want this job. You really want this job and you want to do your very, very best at this interview or maybe you're going to meet someone that um, you want to impress uh, someone that you've kind of looked up to for quite a long time and you really want them to speak, think well of you or maybe you're going out on a date with someone someone you really like and you want them to like you as well and uh, maybe as you do this uh, you may, might go to a friend and you might say well look, I'm going to meet this person I'm going on a job interview going out for a date what, what, what what's your advice you know what, what do you think I should do how should I approach it and my guess is nine times out of ten, your friend might say to you, well, it's, it's okay, it's fine, it'll be all right, just, just, just be yourself. That's the kind of advice we give to each other kind of all the time. Um, I don't know if you've noticed the way we talk about ourselves these days. I went into, uh, I think it was Waterstone some while ago, that um, bookshop, and uh, um, it's funny, when you, when you look going to to some bookshops these days, places like Waterstones, and you look for the kind of religious section. Um, it's very interesting. It doesn't have a kind of religion or Christianity on the top. Often the religious books are in the self-help section. It tells you something in itself, doesn't it? You know, under self-help. Anyway, under there, you will often find titles like um, Believe in Yourself, Know Yourself, Respect Yourself, Love Yourself, Express Yourself. Discover yourself. Be yourself. That's the kind of way we talk about ourselves these days. Uh, and we have this sense, don't we, that there's a, a kind of self inside each one of us that we have to somehow discover uh, and then express. That each one of us has our own individual selves and the key to life is somehow being our true selves. Now, if that's something I was noticing a little while ago, this way in which we talk about ourselves and how one of the kind of cardinal principles, the cardinal commandments of modern culture is to be uh, yourself, um, you might want to look out for kind of adverts and um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, marketing stuff that actually uses that phrase. It's surprisingly common. But I was thinking about this one day and then suddenly came across that reading we had just a few moments ago from uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, where Jesus talks about ourselves. And it struck me that what he said was remarkably different because what he said is this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. It struck me as a little bit odd that here we are telling each other to be ourselves and here is Jesus saying we need to deny ourselves. Now what's going on there? What does he mean? 
does he mean kind of abusing yourself, not taking care of yourself? What does he, what does he actually mean by this, this idea that we have to deny ourselves? Now, just going back to that picture about being yourself for a moment, um, I guess we, we often, we do think about ourselves quite a lot these days, don't we? We worry about ourselves. We worry about um, how others think of us and have we made the right choices in, in life. Um, what does everyone else think of me? And we, we have a measure of that these days that we probably didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. We have this measure of what other people think of us by how we're doing on social media and how many likes or retweets or friends or whatever else you have. That's your score, if you like, as to how people think of you. There's a way of scoring ourselves these days. And in that context, um, that little bit of advice, that be yourself. Now, I guess what I want to suggest is that there may not be quite so straightforward as it might seem. If I'm honest, I've often found when people have said to me, you know, be yourself, I've often found that slightly confusing advice. Um, in fact, I can still remember um, many, many, many years ago uh, when I was a teenager, um, going out for a date with a girl that I really quite liked. And uh, I did the same thing. I went to a friend and said, look, what do you think I should do? I really like this girl. I hope she's going to like me. And he said, oh, well, it's all right. Just, just be yourself. And I can remember thinking at the time, actually, the last thing I want to do on this date is to be myself. Because if she knows what's going on inside my head, all the little doubts and anxieties and fears and lusts and everything else that's going on inside me, there will not be a second date. There will only be one date. So what I did, of course, is I presented a nice sanitized version of myself, something that I think she would quite like, and I kept away from her attention those things that I didn't really want her to know about me. And that's kind of what we do all the time, isn't it? When we meet people, it's what we do on social media. We present the bits that we quite like other people to see, and we hide away the bits of ourselves uh, that we don't. Again, the person... Uh, who says the first thing that comes into their mind in any social situation is usually the person who gets into some kind of trouble. It's not a good advice to kind of say whatever comes into your mind. You've got to be a little bit, a bit of a filter as to which bit of yourself, which bit of your thoughts you actually do express. And again, when you think about it, if you're going into a social situation where you're trying to kind of impress someone or you want them to like you, what you don't want to be doing is going into that situation thinking about yourself. Oh, I've got to be myself. I've got to be myself. I've got to be myself. Because if you do, you know what happens, don't you? When you encounter someone who all they're doing is thinking about themselves, that's not a very attractive thing to draw people. You, the people you really like, the people you enjoy being with, are the people who aren't thinking about themselves at all. They're actually thinking about you. They're more interested in you than they are in themselves. And so this bit of advice to be yourself may not be quite so straightforward as we think. Now, just a, a little bit of um, a detour on this for, for a moment. You might think, well, how, how has it come to be that in modern life there is this cardinal commandment to be yourself? And Because uh, it hasn't always been this way. If you go back three, four hundred years, maybe even less than that, maybe two hundred years, you might even say that People in the, the kind of ancient world, uh, certainly at the time of the Bible, uh, and even on into the kind of, you know, the early, um, in a post-biblical period, into the kind of Middle Ages and beyond, uh, people used to think that there was a kind of big cosmic structure out there that was just given. And there are some religions in the world that believe it's 
given by God. So Christianity and Judaism and Islam have a strong sense of the bigger God out there. Uh, and uh, God is the thing that really matters, and we kind of fit into the structure that God has made for the world. There are some other religions like Taoism or Buddhism and, and, um, and, and, uh, and others like that, and Confucianism, that have a stronger sense of the, the moral law, that there is a kind of moral law to the world that we have to fit into. And what really matters about this world is God or the moral law, this big structure of reality that we have to fit into. And um, even older Greek philosophy, you think of uh, Plato. Plato had this idea, uh, these, the, the, um, what he called the ideas, the forms. And that um, wisdom was found by kind of, you know, um, contemplating uh, ideals. So individual instances of things here on this earth, like every tree out there, is, a, is, a, is an example of an ideal called tree. And to get to the essence of what a tree is, you have to contemplate not that individual tree out there, but the kind of the, the ideal tree that exists on some metaphysical plane above us. So whether it's Plato, whether it's these religions or whatever it was, they had this belief in a kind of wider cosmic structure that we fitted into. And therefore, to find truth, to find moral power, to find a sense of who you were, you looked outside yourself to God or to the moral law, or to these sort of platonic ideas. That's where you went to find out who you were in the world, to find moral power, to find truth. In the modern world, we don't really believe that anymore. We've lost a sense of belief in God. We don't so much believe in a big moral order out there. We don't have any kind of idea of the platonic forms any longer. And so to find truth, to find identity, uh, to find a sense of who we are in the world, uh, to find moral power, we don't so much look outside, but we look inside. We don't look to the heavens, we look into our hearts. And so there is this process in modern life of turning within. It's what some sociologists and philosophers have called the, the subjective turn in modern culture, where we look inside ourselves to find out who we really are or to find a sense of truth, or to find moral purpose. You want to ask, what should I do with my life? Who am I? You don't look to the moral law, you don't look to God, you look at yourself. Look inside myself to find out who I am and how I can live out my own true identity, and so on. So that's something of how we've come to this. And in fact, you can, might even go beyond that to say even in the the kind of romantic movement of the 18th century, you know, with all the romantic poets and others, there was this great emphasis upon, upon feeling, the power of inner feeling and how that determines everything. And that each individual person has our own individual way of being human. Maybe before we had a stronger sense of this thing called human nature that we all shared, and that's what was important about us. But in modern life, we emphasize not so much our common human nature, but our individuality. What makes you, you, and what makes me, me. Each of us has our own individual way of being human. Now, as a result of all this, all these cultural changes over the last few hundred years, and you could go into it in a lot more detail than that, the result is that we got this sense that today, almost the cardinal command, the number one commandment of modern life is to be yourself. Look inside to see who you are. That's where you will find the secret 
of your identity, your truth. But Christian faith has always seen a problem in this. Now, we noted that a few moments ago in thinking about what Jesus says about denying ourselves rather than being ourselves. And some of the great Christian theologians have addressed this as well. Uh, Martin Luther uh, had a, a definition of sin. In other words, where we go wrong as human beings. And he said it's this. Sin is the heart curved in upon itself. It's when we no longer are turned outwards towards God and towards our neighbor, but we turn inwards. We get self-obsessed. We get self-focused. We turn inwards upon ourselves. The heart curved in upon itself. In other words, he suggests that this, this turn inwards is not actually the way to wisdom. Actually, it's the way, the opposite. It's the way to destruction. It's the way turning away from everything that is good in God and our neighbor. Turning inwards is the path to sin, he says. And St. Augustine has, this, again, this idea that, that um, uh, we were made for God. A bit like a flower is made to, to, to flourish by reaching up towards the sun. And a flower can only flourish when it's got the sun drawing it out and reaching up and flowering into the light and the warmth of the sun. But if we are cut off from the sun, if we turn away from the God who is the source of life, then we turn away from life itself. And so you can imagine a flower, rather than reaching up towards the sun, turning back down towards the earth again and shriveling up and dying in the process. And so our Christian wisdom suggests that that turn inwards, that self-focus, is actually part of the problem of modern life, not the solution to it. So what then is the solution to it? How do we understand a Christian understanding of the self? Let me put it this way. This idea that we have that there is some inner self to each one of us, that there is some core inside me that is my own individual identity and my task in life is to find out who I really am and simply to be myself. It's as if what I have to do is sort of peel away uh, all the extraneous layers of what everybody else expects me to do and then I will find my true self. It's a bit like we are artichokes. Um, have you ever seen an artichoke? An artichoke is a little kind of green vegetable with all kind of, you know, it's got little leaves all around it. And if you're cooking an artichoke to eat it, uh, the, the idea is that you have to peel away the leaves, get rid of all the leaves, and inside the artichoke you will find this, this precious, delicious little core. And that's the bit that you, you actually have to eat. You, you don't need the leaves, you take away the leaves, throw them away, and you eat the core. Now that's, if you like, our kind of modern understanding of ourselves. If we could peel away, if we could only get rid of all the, the roles that we play in society, all the annoying expectations that other people have on us, now, if we could find our own inner self, we would find true wisdom. But I guess the question is this. What if we are more like onions than artichokes? Because 
Okay, artichokes have layers. You peel away the layers, the leaves, to find the, the, the delicious core at the heart of it. Uh, onions also have layers. But if you start to peel away the layers of an onion, what do you find at the center of the onion? Nothing. Just onion. Because the point is that the layers are the onion. The layers aren't some extraneous thing that you have to get rid of to find some inner core. The layers are the onion. Now, and I would suggest a kind of Christian understanding of the self, and uh, not just Christian, but it's true for many other kind of older ways of thinking, is that we are actually more like onions than we are artichokes. In other words, those expectations that others have of us, the roles that we play as husbands and wives and friends and citizens and neighbors and children and parents and worshipers, that is who we are. They're not extraneous things that you have to get rid of to find some inner core to yourself. You are a child, a parent, a wife, a husband, a friend, a partner, a citizen, a neighbor, a worshiper. It is your relationships that make you who you are. The commitments that you enter into, the relationships that you have, that's what makes you who you are. You are not someone, someone separate from those things, finding yourself if you could only get rid of them. In fact, if you got rid of those things, you would almost not exist at all. Now, if that's our way of understanding it, it would suggest this, that our true selves are not so much discovered, but created. They're created over time. They're created over time by the particular commitments that we make, the things and the people we commit ourselves to, the relationships we enter into, the roles that we play within the societies that we're part of. Yes, of course, we are born into the world with a particular DNA that we may have from our parents, and each one of us has a slightly different version of that. But if you like it, those selves are very malleable. They're a bit like putty. And they get shaped over time by the things that happen to us, by the experiences uh, that uh, take place, by the commitments we enter into, the relationships we have, and so on. Our selves are shaped and created over time. It's a bit actually like our bodies. If you think of your body for a moment... Your body bears the marks of the things that have happened to you over time. And the older you are, the more your body is likely to bear those marks. Little scars, little bumps, little kind of, you know, things that don't quite work any longer. Um, I think it was Albert Camus, the French novelist, who said that um, uh, anyone over a certain age is responsible for their own face. A sobering thought for those of us who are a little bit older in life, but you can kind of see what he means. You know, if you've spent your life frowning and groaning and being miserable, and you know, your, your face tends to take that shape. If you said, spend your life smiling and being kind of warm and open, that your face takes that shape. Uh, again, um, the way the things we do with ourselves and the way we kind of use our bodies, we do, our bodies take shape according to what happens to us. And it's a similar case, even more so, I think, of our inner lives, ourselves. So if your real self is not so much discovered, but created, it is being created even now as you live through your life at whatever stage you are, 
then what will that self be? Well, let's go back to what Jesus says. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Or if you put that in the, uh, the message translation, it says this. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself your true self. Well, Jesus is saying that somehow, if we're going to find our true selves, it's not a matter of looking within and being ourselves, it's losing ourselves for the sake of Christ. Focusing up ourselves upon him rather than upon our own some uh, inner self, as it were. Again, another way of putting it would be what we read in our second reading today from Ephesians, uh, where St. Paul wrote this. He talked about our old self, that old self um, that was corrupted by deceitful desires. But then he talks about our new self, our new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Now, how is that new self found? And again, I think his answer is the same as that of Jesus. We find our true selves not by looking inwards, but by looking outwards to the God who made us and who alone can shape us into the person that we were created to be. Created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. In other words, for each one of us to be shaped in some, our own particular individual way, into the image of Christ. That is our true self that is being created. That's who we were made to be, our true self in Christ. And we can only find that true self in relation to Christ, in relation to the God who made us, not apart from him. We can only find our true selves in relation to the people that we've put ourselves around. That's each other within the church, the people that we commit ourselves to over a lifetime. And so that, that idea, advice, to, to just to be yourself, get rid of everybody else, don't think about what anybody else says, don't take any notice of them, just focus upon yourself, it just turns our attention into the wrong place. Because we will find our true selves in relation to God and to each other, not just by looking within. So, of course, when Jesus talks about denying ourselves, he doesn't mean abusing ourselves. He doesn't mean neglecting ourselves, neglecting our health, neglecting uh, our kind of inner life in any way. What he does mean, I think, is this. He means being recognizing the difference between what St. Paul talks about called our old self and our new self, the new self created to be like Christ in righteousness and holiness. It's being skilled at recognizing that old self, the one that just wants to be focused upon me. And uh, the picture that Paul paints is like in each one of us who is a Christian, there's these two selves, that old self that is just about me, it's about being myself, just not, not worrying about anybody else, not listening to anybody else, just being me. And the new self in relation to Christ and others that is growing into the, the person that God has created me to be. And he, he says we have to be skilled at, at recognizing that old self, that self that always wants to be at the center of attention. That self inside me that wants to be popular at all costs, that wants to get its own way, 
And what I need to do is learn to recognize that self and be quite ruthless with it. To recognize when that voice pops into my head, which is all about me. And actually to be fairly harsh on that self. Now that doesn't mean abusing ourselves. We need to take a proper care for our body and our well-being. We need to eat well, to sleep well, to look after ourselves in that sense. We're no use to anyone if we neglect our health and our, our own well-being, if we don't get proper rest and refreshment and feeding our souls with what gives us life. But unless we are learned to discipline that old self that is all about me and my fortunes and what, what, what matters to me, I will never find my true self in Christ. Now, we, we, we kind of recognize this in children, don't we? You know, when you have a child, a toddler growing up, uh, you know, we recognize a, a child has a tantrum when they don't get what they want. And uh, a good parent will discipline the child. You know, no Xbox for you for the next few weeks or no, no sweets or whatever it might be. Um, and we kind of learn to do that. We learn to discipline our children to help them to learn to say no to that old self, if you like. What we don't often recognize is that old self doesn't go away when we get older. We just get a bit, a bit better at hiding it. We get a little bit more sophisticated in our ways of hiding that little self that has the tantrum every time we don't get our own way. And learning to deny ourselves is learning to recognize that voice and to discipline it in the same way that we would a child when they have a tantrum because they don't get their own way but instead to encourage this new self into life. Now this new self, how do we practically enable this new self to emerge? Well, if we are more like onions than artichokes, in other words, that the layers are the onion, the relationships and commitments we enter into are the people that we become, then Choose carefully the habits that you build into your life, the relationships that are most important to you, because they will shape you and they will form you. And ourselves are being created by the habits that we form over time, and they have an effect on us. It's why we come here to worship. What we've been doing tonight um, by singing and worshipping together. It's not just so that we feel a little bit better on a Sunday evening. We come here for the discipline of worship so that for a moment, for that, however long it is, on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, we take our attention off ourselves and we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ. We reconnect to the one who is the source of life. And that is a regular habit of life, regular habit of worship, just turns us outwards towards the God in, in relationship to whom we can only be, we, alone can we become who we've been created to be. Uh, we have the regular habit of reading the Bible, making sure that every day we take some time to read some part of God's Word, growing in understanding of our faith, finding our minds shaped and transformed. Now again, it's not that every time you read the Bible some great miraculous revelation suddenly blows upon your mind, but just by exposure to the text of Scripture slowly over time, we're shaped by it. We're drawn outwards into the world of the Bible itself. We come to church for 
for Holy Communion, by, by, giving, by being given the gift of bread and wine, these tokens of Christ's presence. It's as if we are refocusing upon our, our lives upon Christ who gives himself to us in this way. Um, fellowship, being together like this or meeting in a small group, um, just allowing yourself to be shaped by a group of other people that you enter into relationship with. There's something significant about that because you know, all the sociologists tell you that we become like the people you spend time with. So choose the people you spend time with carefully because you'll become like them for better or worse. And if you want to become like Christ, well, you want to be with people who are learning to become like Christ and do that regularly. Doesn't mean you don't have relationships with people who aren't Christians. Of course you do. Um, and we have good, strong relationships with them. But we make sure whatever else we do, we do surround ourselves with people who are learning to grow into the likeness of Christ, like we are trying to do. We have uh, the discipline of service, of seeking to make sure that somewhere in our lives there's a commitment and spending time with people who are less well off than we are, seeking to remember the needs of others beyond ourselves, something that takes us out of ourselves to address and focus upon the needs of others rather than our own needs. Now, these are the, the kinds of disciplines, the habits of worship and scripture, and holy communion, and fellowship and service. These are the disciplines that if we build them into our lives, they gradually create the layers of the onion. They shape us. And they shape us into people, not turned inwards upon ourselves, self-obsessed, thinking that we're going to find some inner secret to who we really are, but instead turned outwards like the flower in relation to the God who is the source of life, in relation to others that we're called to love and be loved by. And in that process, we find our true selves appearing. There's a text at the end of... The, uh, the Bible, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, that says this. It says, what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's really interesting, that, isn't it? What we will be has not yet been revealed. So if you ask that question of identity, who, who am I? My answer is, I don't know yet, because what I am is not yet been revealed. It will be revealed in that day when I will see Christ face to face. And it's being shaped over time as I commit myself to Christ, to his people, to his purposes in the world, and to love God and to love my neighbor. Because at the end of the day, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? What is the purpose of human life? He didn't say, be yourself. He said, learn to love God and learn to love your neighbor. Be turned outwards towards God and your neighbor. Then you will find your true self. That's when we slowly realize that we are beloved children of God made to be in relationship with God and our neighbor, shaped by those relationships, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And as we commit ourselves to that vision and to the habits that build a self over a lifetime, 
we will find our true selves emerging into the light. Amen. Thank you. Why don't we just take a moment just to say hello to the people around us, um, just in our seats, and just to say hi this evening. And you may uh, want to share something you thought of the talk, but also you might want to see, actually, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask? We don't often get a bishop here, so if you could just store up your really hard questions that you want to ask, we could ask him tonight. Um, But why don't we just take just a moment just to say hello to one another, uh, to greet one another, and just maybe, yeah have that chance. Is there a question anyone wants to ask? Maybe you could talk together and see if anyone feels brave. Otherwise, I might ask you a few, Graham, just, you know, while you're here. Might as well make the most of it. (laughs) It's a little way from where you're from. (laughs) Hello. So if you're watching at home, sorry, we were just having a bit of a chit-chat in the room and saying hello to each other. Um, uh, You're just going to enjoy that too much, aren't you? But I just thought I'd see if anyone has any questions for Bishop Graham. And if you don't, I'm going to ask him at least one. But um, it's just an opportunity. Uh, Annette does. Hello, Annette. What about gift and calling? We've got to find those, not just in ourselves, but it's a little bit turned in, isn't it? How do we find our gift and calling? We need to turn in on ourselves to do that, surely. Yeah, it's a really interesting question about gifts and calling. I always find it quite interesting what the, the way that the, the New Testament talks about gifts. The gifts are given for the edification of the body. They're not just given for ourselves. And actually, very often our gifts are discovered in relationship to others. It's often when someone else says to you, you know, do you know you have a gift for this area? That's how you discover it. In fact, we are very often the worst judges of our own gifts, I might think, well, I've got a great gift of playing the violin. Um, everybody else might think I do not have a gift of playing the violin. In fact, if you heard me playing the violin, you would realize I don't have a gift for doing that. Um, because we can be very self-deceptive about our own gifts. And so even gifts, I mean, you're right, there is that element to each one of us has a different gift. That's what it says within, uh, within the New Testament. It's not that we're all the same. Uh, we have these different gifts and personalities and so on, but that is called out so often in relationship to other people rather than self-discerned. And it's expressed and given for the sake of building up others and for the sake of building those relationships with each other rather than just building up ourselves. So that even the gift of tongues, for example, we're told is is given for the edification of the whole, not just um, for my own private spiritual benefit, as it were. Um, So I find that very interesting, that that even the language of gift, which are absolutely right, is different in each one of us, is always set in the context of the wider connection of other people, discerned by others and given for the sake of our relationships to others too. Thanks. Great. Any more? Danny. Um, we were talking in a group, and one of the questions were, what are the characteristics that you need to mould to become closer with God? Thank you. So what are the characteristics that you need to mould to become um, closer to God? Well, there are, lots of, there are a number of lists of those that you get within the New Testament. I'm always quite fascinated by them. And um, you get lists like... Um, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And um, you kind of, they, they kind of run off the tongue, don't they, a little bit? You know, love, joy, peace, blah, 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 blah. It's worth just pondering on each one of those. Love, joy, peace, 
Patience. Kindness. Gentleness. Self-control. When, when you sort of slow down a little bit and you ponder each one for a moment, um, you, you might want to sometimes... And, of course, they're all, they're all relational qualities. Um, you know, kindness is something you express towards someone else. Uh, love is something you express towards someone else. Patience is what you have to exercise when someone else is being a pain in the backside. And you just have to be a little bit patient with them. A forbearance. Forbearance is, is told, you know, it's, forbearance is kind of when you have to kind of put up with someone for a while, which sounds like a really negative thing, but actually sometimes you just kind of need to do that when someone's really being quite difficult and you just have to learn to forbear, not, not to get angry, not to get impatient, but just to, um, to, to kind of forbear with them. And we're told those qualities are needed because that's exactly what you're going to need if you belong to a church. Um, you're going to need patience. You're going to need forbearance um, because it's not all straight sailing and every relationship being perfect all the time. So what I would suggest is that those particular lists of qualities that we get within um, the New Testament, they're worth just pondering on. Maybe, maybe just focusing on one or two at a time. You can't do all of them. But you might want to say, okay, um, let's take, let me take, for the next three months, I'm going to focus on kindness and humility. I've got to try and you know, learn how to be more kind and a little bit more how to be humble. And one of the ways in which you learn these things is by watching other people who exemplify them. Kindness, for example, is kind of hard to imagine. What is, what is kindness and how would you describe it? You can try to put words on it, but it's a lot easier when you see someone and you think, yeah, that's kindness. That is a person who has real kindness. Um, but a week or so ago, I, I um, took the funeral of uh, someone that I, I knew very well when I was a curate many years ago uh, in our church. Um, and um, when I was thinking about what to say about her, I kind of thought, well, when I thought of that word kindness, I always thought of her. I thought of Liz. Because she had that gift of kindness. She would anticipate other people's needs um, before they even expressed them. She would think, yeah, how, can I, how can I do something to anticipate that person's need? Can I just drop a card in their door? Can I just give them a box of chocolates? Can I send them some flowers? Can I just send them a... This is before the age of text, but, you know, the, the equivalent. That's kindness, that anticipating the needs of others. So you can't learn all of them at, all the time, but you might want to focus on one or two for a period of time over a couple of months and say, I, I really want to learn kindness and humility. And maybe if I look around, you know, who's, a, who's a good example of kindness? Can I watch them for a little bit? Um, and maybe if you've got a group of other friends or close friends who are with you, just to say to them, you know, can you pray for me that I really learn kindness and humility over that period of time? Then you might want to move on to patience and gentleness. But these qualities, these are the qualities, I think, that are, are what it looks like to be created to be like Christ, be like God in true righteousness and holiness. hope that helps. Okay. Great. Just check there's time for one more. If not, I'm going to ask my question about confirmation. Oh, Monique. Here we go. Mine is to do with confirmation. So <laughs> I'm thinking about getting confirmed, and I'd just love to know why you're an Anglican as opposed to any other type of Christian. Oh, that's, that's uh, yeah. Okay, why? <laughs> okay, so why am I an Anglican as opposed to any other kind of Christian? That's uh, a good question because I didn't grow up an Anglican. Uh, I actually grew up a Baptist. My dad was a Baptist minister. 
and um, uh, I grew up within that sort of, sort of environment. And so uh, actually it happened that when I, um, and I had a period of time when I was a teenager when I, I de definitely didn't believe in God. Uh, I kind of reacted against my kind of upbringing, and uh, there was a number of years where I would, you know, if you'd asked me, I would have said, no, I don't believe in God at all. I was a very convinced atheist. Um, and I sometimes say my, my teenage rebellion was not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was, it was re reading Nietzsche. Um, that kind of tells you a little bit about me. Um, but I kind of, you know, I was trying to find the most radical atheist I could think of and um, would read, read um, Nietzsche and others. But I, I kind of came, came back to faith. And... Um, uh, when I, I did that, I, I kind of um, began to think about maybe getting ordained within the, within the church. And I went to see a good friend of ours who was an Anglican minister, my friend of my parents. And he said, look, I know your parents are Baptists. Um, uh, but if you're going to become an Anglican, you need to think about a couple of things. And he said to me, uh, would you baptize a baby? And I said, um, well, not sure, really. Because, of course, Baptists don't baptize babies. They just they think you always have to baptize people who are kind of, you know, who are grown up and can, can as an adult, say, that, you know, this is why I believe and so on. Um, uh, so I, I, he sent me to go away and think about it and to think about, you know, well, would I baptize a baby? And I thought about that for quite a long time and actually began to realize that, um, uh, that, um, that actually you know, when I had my own children, uh, we had a choice. Either we were going to bring them up to believe in God and to, um, to pray and to know God as their father and Jesus as their savior from their very earliest days, or we weren't. We weren't going to say to them, well, actually, no, God isn't your father. Um, Jesus isn't your savior. You've got to decide that when you're, you're older. Um, we kind of brought them up with that. And that's what my parents did to me. Even though they were Baptists, they actually taught me to be a Christian right from the very word go. Um, just like they taught me to brush my teeth from the word go. Didn't give me any choice about that. Um, if you're a Christian, you have a child, you bring your child up as a Christian. You don't say, well, I don't know, you don't have to worry about that for the moment. Just think about it when you're 14. You don't do that. You bring them up from within the faith. And so infant baptism to me made an awful lot of sense, and that's something of what we do as an Anglican. I began to think about the way we order our churches um, and the fact that we have these things called bishops. Now, that's long before I was a bishop. Um, but it seems to me that the idea of bishops is that each church is connected to the other, we're not just isolated individual churches on our own. We're connected to each other. And one of the connections is that we all, all the churches have a relationship with their bishop. So, you know, I have a relationship with you. You have a relationship with me as your bishop, your bishop. So does the next door parish. So does the one over there. And they may be very different from you, but they kind of, it kind of connects us to one another. It's a bit like what we were talking about earlier on, that we're not just individuals. And we become ourselves in relationship to each other. It's the same way in the church. We become ourselves in relationship to each other. It doesn't mean we're all the same, but that connection is really quite important. And I think the other thing, reason why I'm an Anglican is because, because it kind of has a long history within this nation and because in some ways there's something about the end of the parish system that every single square inch of this country is kind of has, there's someone who has a spiritual responsibility for that, um, the local vicar. Um, there's something right, really good about that. That actually Nicola's job is not just to look after those of you who come to church. It's in some way to, to hold the spiritual temperature and to, to take a responsibility for everyone who lives in this parish, whether or not they come to church, and to be interested in their lives, interested in the things that matter to them. So those are some of the reasons why I think, I could go on for a long time about this, but some of the reasons why uh, I'm an Anglican. That doesn't mean I don't think other denominations are 
worse than Anglicans or wrong. There may be some bits where I might have disagreements with them. But I've found a home within the Anglican Church um, that I feel comfortable with. It's got a depth about it. Um, yeah, it can be frustrating at times. It takes ages to make up its mind about things. Um, but sometimes that's not a bad thing, rather than rushing to judgment too quickly. Uh, we do take our time. We think and ponder about things for a long time. And so those are some of the reasons that makes some sense.